It's rare that something has the potential to help both our bodies and the planet at the same time. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Oobly and sweet proteins. Did you know that protein has a sweet tooth? That's right. There are a handful of plants that grow near the equator that make fruit that produce sweet-tasting plant protein that's not sugar. These are called sweet proteins. Sweet proteins are amazing tricksters and taste absolutely delicious. But better yet, they're digested just like any other dietary protein. That means they have no impact on blood sugar or the gut microbiome. Oobly uses sweet proteins to make incredible plant-based, low-sugar, sweet iced teas that are craft-brewed with clean, fresh ingredients and zero artificial sweeteners. No stevia, no sugar alcohols. With only 7 grams of sugar in an entire 16-ounce can, and that includes the fruit, you can have your sweet and sip it too. Oobly's sweet teas come in three delicious flavors, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. Get 20% off your first order with the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com. G-E-N-I-U-S. That's the promo code at oobly.com. O-O-B-L-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. We had a very interesting guest. Uh, his name is Bob Walters. Bob writes, edits, serves, and teaches in the Christian community. Uh, he has an in-spirit Christian column that's uh, published Tuesdays in Metro Indianapolis. The current news or was pu- published in um, Tuesdays in uh, Metro in- Indianapolis papers and papers called Current Papers in Carmel, Westfield, Noblesville, and Fishers, Indiana for nine years, uh, 2006 to 2015. But Bob continues to write a weekly uh, blog that comes by email called Common Christianity, where he shares opinions, stories, or lessons from Christian perspectives. It's an excellent column. I subscribe to it now. And, uh, you know, what Bob writes is, is welcome in my inbox every week. So I wanted to talk to him about his life and his uh, walk in faith and everything, because uh, he appears to be incredibly knowledgeable about many things in faith, of which I am not. So, Bob, welcome. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, if you would tell me a bit about, if, if it's okay to, to jump in, how were you always a person of Christian faith, or did you come to faith at a later point in life, and what's uh, that story? I'm a, I'm a late-to-the-party guy, and um, and anybody that's listening to this will know immediately that you're you're from out east, because you said Carmel. We like to say that it's Carmel by the cornfield as opposed to Carmel by the sea. We're located uh-huh. here in central Indiana, and I live in a, uh, the northeast side of Indiana. Indianapolis, a place called Fishers. But no, you know, Rich, I uh, I was an Episcopal altar boy as a kid in my hometown of Kokomo, Indiana. And I knew when to ring the bells. And Father Cooper was a great guy and uh, lived close to the church. So I was kind of a, a church rat. I was there all the time uh, as, a, as an acolyte. But I aged out of that in high school and, and got away from it. And it wasn't until I was 47 and had Pretty much had a, had a whole career at that point in sports writing, and I worked in the sports public relations, a lot of it in auto racing, Indy cars, NASCAR, and so forth. But uh, had a my 13-year-old eighth grade son came, uh, we were sitting at dinner one night. Carmel is a, is a town that has a lot of churches in it. It's got three huge Catholic parishes. It's, um, it's affluent. 
it's educated, a lot of families, and, and that's who goes to church. Uh, those are the families that tend to, to find faith in their lives. So they'd been talking about it on the bus and said, how come we don't go to church? And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, that's, uh, that's convicting. So we went to church a couple of weeks later, and golly, it could be an unbelievably long story, but I'm sitting there in church, and my kids had gone into the youth program and were obviously very happy. And as I was sitting in church, I just, it, something just changed. I, I, I wasn't an atheist. I wasn't looking for anything. I wasn't in crisis. I didn't go because, you know, here God helped me out of this jam. And, and at the time, you know, career was in disarray and some things. But, you know, I wasn't there because I wanted anything other than that my sons wanted to go. So we went there, and I just kind of, I had a tear in my eye, and I knew something had changed just right there. But, you know, it was a while. And again, I'm 47 years old, and it was a while before I understood anything. But, you know, when you come up in a liturgical faith and the Episcopal Anglican Church is actually a direct offshoot of the Roman Catholic Church from the 1500s, King Henry VIII, another long story. But the fact is that if you know the Episcopal service, you can go to a Catholic, or you can, back in the 60s, you could go into a Catholic service, and they were nearly identical, except English versus, uh, you know, that before Vatican II, you know, they, you encountered more Latin in the uh, in yeah. Catholic Mass. But, um, you know, I knew that much of it, but like the Catholic Church, the, uh, you know, the the laity didn't really know much about the Bible. We had a book of common prayer and you had a, a liturgy or litany, whatever you want to call it. And I knew that, but I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have that relationship piece with anything outside of Father Cooper, who's a great guy, hunting well, buddy of my dad's. Good and, question uh, here. Um, so what do you mean they didn't? You didn't know much about the Bible, did they? What did they? Talk you know, about you, you know, in a in the Episcopal Church, and, and I would say most Catholic churches, you're not going to find Bibles around like you do in a in a Bible evangelical church. That's generally not something that's pushed on folks. I mean, they'll have Bible studies, but it's the interpretation of Scripture in the Roman Catholic and the Anglican churches is more in the province of the church and the and the clergy, not in the laity. Where in a that's one of the big differences in a Bible church, you know, you read the Bible, you've got other people, you you look for discernment in the spirit, and uh, and you're you know so you're you're in the Bible all the time, and that really doesn't happen in the liturgical churches. So, well, again, if that's not there, what what is uh, what's spoken about? Tradition. I mean, that was what the Protestant Reformation was. Luther started reading the Bible, which interestingly enough, it's again the 1500s and. That was right after the Gutenberg Press, so Bible started showing up more frequently. But um, Eric Metaxas had a good book about about Luther uh, that you know kind of fills in a lot of the blanks of what happened. But the Roman Catholic Church is is very heavy on tradition, and anytime they come, at, you know, if, if and I've got a lot, you know, Catholic friends, and uh, and I read a Catholic journal first things that I that I just admire enormously. But I always say, you're if you have an argument <laughs> with. You know, with my faith, don't start with me. Start with the Orthodox Church, you know, because you guys have been fighting for 2,000 years. And there was the Great Schism in 1060, whatever it was, where the East and Western churches uh, split over the nature of Jesus. Another long story, but I couldn't read the Bible. I, I, I would try to read it. You know, I was a writer, but until my th that day in church, and then I went to a class, and then I went to another class, and, and suddenly the Bible started making sense to me. I, I, I didn't understand everything, but I could read it, and I read it as truth, not just as, I just don't get what's going on. I, it kind of sneaked up on me, but over time, I, I got to where I, you know, I think I understand what's going on. The Old Testament is, tells us everything that doesn't work, 
It's a story without an ending, and the New Testament shows us what does work and is is that's is the conclusion of the story. Do you find that a lot of people just can't read the Bible for various reasons unless they have a lot of help to do so? Well, that's a great question. People, there, there are all kinds of folks that are experts on the Bible who don't believe in Jesus. You know, they really aren't people of faith. It can be a, an academic, just an, an academic thing. And I, I know my, my older son, the same one, said, let's go to church. Got a, a minor in religious studies at Purdue here in Indiana. And, um, you know, it was it was kind of obvious that the people, some of the some of the professors he had were they, they really understood the Bible, but they didn't really believe it. I had a, uh, a philosophy professor in college that didn't believe the sun came up in the east. I mean, he just did. But he could explain any religion to you. It, in my experience, it's a, it's a thing with the spirit that when the lights come on, the lights just kind of come on. And that's that was my experience with it. Yeah, very interesting. Huh. Well, yeah, please continue. So you started going, felt something shift in you. And then what happened from there? Did the things I, accelerate or take off? I, I just, I kept running into people. The day that I was in church that very first time, there was this wonderful preacher named Russ Blowers, who it was his 50th anniversary of the start of to the date, September 2nd, 1951, and September 2nd, 2001. Was, and it was, it was a 50-year anniversary for him, and he was talking about the, the love chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I was so impressed with his command. But anyway, so he's, he's the main event that day. And, and uh, afterwards, there was a fellow I knew from work that he— Russ also knew, so I talked to this guy, and he was he was one of the guys who raced in the Indianapolis 500 here. And he was a friend of mine because I, I used to work in auto racing. And I started talking with him, and Russ knew him as well. So a week later, Russ and I are having lunch together. Russ was just that kind of guy. And suddenly, here's Russ Flowers, and I don't know much about anything. And it, September 1st, 2001 was about a week before 9-11. Well, Russ and I realized, I mean, I didn't know anything about Christianity or Islam or anything else. But Russ and I both, we had lunch about two weeks after the 9-11 attacks. And uh, at lunch, we, you know, he knew some stuff about Islam, but Christians basically don't know about Islam. And, and most Muslims don't know a whole lot about Christianity. Uh, that's, that's just kind of how it is. So um, we read a book kind of together. Bernard Lewis, he's a Princeton guy. Uh, Bernard Lewis, I think the book, name of the book was uh, What Went Wrong, but it talked about Islamic stuff. So we got to be very close. Then I, I was drawn in and the guy who was the senior pastor of the church, Russ had retired, but I got into a class and was baptized and we got to be fairly close. And a few months later, this George Babawi, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, was this uh, soon to retire divinity lecturer at Cambridge, England. And he's a multilingual Bible translator who was also a Coptic priest. Copts are the that's the Egyptian Orthodox. St. Mark, after the resurrection, did many things, but Mark went to Cairo, and the Coptic Church traces itself to, to St. Mark. But George was this, I don't know, he spoke every language, you know, Hebrew, Arabic, Latin, Greek, Syriac, Arabic, or uh, Aramaic. He was, a, he was a phenomenal wealth of information, and he's a world-renowned expert on the early church, Eastern religion, and church fathers, who are the, uh, you know, the John Chrysostom and Origen and Tertullian and all these, uh, Maximus the Confessor, all these guys from the early days, Athanasius. And he's he was renowned for his expertise and all that stuff. So then I, I met George just at a social event. Next thing you know, I'm new to the faith and I'm, you know, we're sending texts and emails back and forth. And he, the reason he was here, he had a woman here that he, he married. So he winds up living in Carmel, Indiana, you know, from Cairo, from from Cambridge, England. And Russ Blowers and I 
got together and went to the pastor at the church and said, we've got this guy in town. He needs to be teaching something here. You know, he's he's retired. And so that started 14 years of studying with George. And like I say, Rich, all, all these things just sort of happened around me. I didn't, I felt like I didn't really make anything happen. I just had this interest, you know, and, and so faith grew. And when I had questions, I had these, you know, lions of the faith that I could go to and say, okay, what's, what, what's the deal with Jacob wrestling with God? Who exactly was that that Jacob was wrestling with? You know, was that God or was it a, you know, pre-incarnate Christ or what was the deal? And I got absolutely opposite answers from George and from Russ huh, <laughs> early funny. on in my faith. So, and that told me that it, it's okay to disagree. You look around and everybody has to win. You know, you have to win the argument. I have to be right, which means you have to be wrong. And if you're wrong, then I have to kill you. And so much of our society, not just religious, but, you know, you look at everything that our culture is fighting about, we're, you know, in our competition, we don't think there's room for more person than one to be right. And I, I encountered Christ my way. You encountered your faith, your your view of God, of heaven, you know, things that you believe. Everybody does that in a very personal way. So if truth exists, and I'm convinced that it does in Christ, then all these opinions and various things that we have in ourselves, I think are really gifts from the Spirit that tell us that, yes, we're unique, and yes, we're loved, and yes, we're supposed to be creative and, you know, not necessarily march all of us to the same drumbeat. So where the Bible says, you know, do not judge, people, you know, <laughs> I mean, don't judge me, shut up, I don't want to hear, you know, if you disagree with me. But I hear, you know, things all the time, I'm sure you do too, that it's like, I don't necessarily agree. I was talking to a guy the other day, and his Christian experience starts with the Ten Commandments. And I, I think that's that's Ten Commandments. Everybody, anything in the Bible, people know about the Ten Commandments. Probably, probably agree or don't. But I would start my Christian walk with Jesus Christ, not with the Ten Commandments. So, so there's a difference. And he looks at uh, Daniel and Revelation and not doing. And this guy's a physician, by the way, so he's not he's not an unstudied guy. Right. But but everybody has this different experience, and I and I celebrate that. And I guess the the reason for the the column that I write you know, is to encourage people in their faith. And, you know, I, we, again, for your audience, you know, you, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about some of these issues, but there, there are things that I see in the church and I think, well, no, if Jesus Christ is supposed to be a, about, about joy, if, if the gift of the spirit is our joy in the Lord, the, the joy in the Lord is our strength, then why do we spend so much time on fear and guilt and sin and, and those things that, and those are all very important. But if I'm going to find joy, what is it that I'm missing that if I'm, you know, wh where is my joy? And our joy is in that relationship that we have, you know, with Christ and knowing the truth and knowing that God exists. At least that's that's where my joy is. It just seems like um, God's nature or our interpretation of him is paradoxical. And these paradoxes live side by side, you know, like judging and not judging, being in fear, but also being in, in love and in faith. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? That these exist simultaneously. Most of the fear the Lord stuff is in the Old Testament, and most of the do not fear is in the New Testament. So I, where I don't see a paradox, I see God is righteous all all the time in all cases, and that there's there are two different gods. There's not a God of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but in the fall, which there's a mystery. You know, why did He create something and then there was this fall? And where did Satan come from? There are many questions there, but taking that we're created in in God's image, you know, Genesis one, we're created in God's image. Then when you look at the Gospel of John, John one, 
look look who the creator is. It's Jesus. Nothing that was made was made without him, the, the word of the Lord, who we understand as the Logos or Jesus Christ. The, the righteousness of God that we had as, as a creation because we were to be in his image, we then lose that in the fall. And then God builds up the nation of Israel, saying that through that nation, he will bring salvation to all mankind. And then here comes Jesus, who, you know, provides that salvation is simply very, you know, most simple circumstance put with his sacrifice on the cross. He's a he's a perfect sacrifice that in the Bible you read that, well, there's all this stuff about sacrifices, but then we hear that I don't want your sacrifices. What I want, really, I want a relationship with you. And you can say, God just doesn't seem consistent. And I, in my experience, Rich, it's, we're the ones that, that are consistent, that if we understand God's utter righteousness, we're down here, you know, in our fallen state. And yes, we're sinful and, and these things. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, if I do this, I will please God. Or if I do this, I will make God mad at me. Or if I get so many, you know, holy card points, I will, I will have a better reward in heaven. And I don't think anything we do affects God so much as it affects us and affects our, our life here on earth. We all know we should be eating less sugar, but we're constantly bombarded with drinks and snacks loaded with refined sugar or alternative sweeteners like stevia or erythritol that recent studies have shown might not be as harmless as we thought. Enter Oobly, who just launched the world's first beverages to satisfy your sweet tooth with protein. Sweet proteins are nature's candy and give Oobly's brand new sweet iced teas sugar-like sweetness without the impact to your health. Get 20% off your Oobly order with the promo code GENIUS at Oobly.com and try all three delicious craft-brewed sweet iced teas, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. That's Oobly.com, O-O-B-L-I.com, and use the code GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Why would there be these these serial covenants? You know, like some people, well, a lot of people say, God is omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, etc. So it, in, in one hand, it seems like he tried this covenant. We screwed it up. It didn't work. He's like, all right, I'll, uh, let's try this. Uh, all right, let's try this. But why would that be? Or is that a crazy I think, interpretation? I think that God did that to prove that humankind was really, really bad at following instructions. That I, 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 look, at, I look at that and you say, well, you know, was he trying to save us then? I think God was trying to show us what doesn't work, and people want, you know, people want to have rules. Our society today, we want to have rules. And then very much of the Christian walk that's supposed to be in faith, we're still looking for, okay, give me some rules to follow so I can prove to God that I, you know, so God will know that I love him. And you can't make a list out of love. Think your relationship with, oh, say your wife. You don't have a list that says, okay, if you love me, you do this, 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 and this. You may have a division of labor within the household. But as soon as you start marking things off, and well, you did this today, but you didn't do that. Well, you did that, you didn't do that. Now we've changed the game into one of into one of judgment. And almost everything about the old covenant is where people have to do certain things so that they know that they are close to God. A great theological mistake that, that George pointed out, and this is one where you can start a fight in almost any Sunday school class, but the covenant today, our the, the covenant that exists in Christ is not between us and God. The covenant is between God uh, and Jesus, and our faith in Jesus is what provides our access uh, to the kingdom through Jesus. I, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life, uh, John 14, 6. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. And people say, well, that's very exclusive. It's like, well, you know, if you don't, if you don't like Jesus in this lifetime, you know, why is it you're worried about you know, why, why do you want to spend eternity with him in heaven? That's how I'd answer that, that the covenants are, hmm. I, I don't see the, um, well, in the, in the Beatitudes there, it, it starts out in, in Matthew 5, where it talks about, I am the fulfillment 
of uh, of the law, but maybe but not the replacement. There wasn't anything wrong with the law because the law did exactly what God wanted it to do. But he also knew Jesus wasn't a plan B. You know, Jesus, the Trinity, the the holy relationship again, a mystery that goes from you know from whatever the beginning was, but it's it's eternal. You know that that coming and saving mankind was uh you know wasn't something like well this one didn't work so now we'll do this well i don't i don't think the the old covenant was ever meant to i mean and it wasn't for anybody but but the but the nation of israel you know that that covenant wasn't there to you know the greeks didn't have to follow it or people from other places the egyptians didn't have to follow it that was specifically aimed at the uh the, the seed of abraham abraham isaac and jacob that their nation would be this massive piece of humanity and I think the mistake that was made there that fulminated in the time of Christ was that, you know, they were pretty sure that the Messiah Savior was going to save them and make them the preeminent race on earth, where I, I think a more accurate reading of his Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets tells us that, you know, all along God intended that Israel would be lifted up as providing the Savior for the entire world, not just salvation for himself. Okay. For most Christians, do you do you think that they know much about the Old Testament or that they invoke any of it in their daily living? Um, yes. You know, yes. to, like to be a good Christian, what's the role of the Old Testament? Oh my, uh, prophecy. I mean, there that is such a great Christ, great question, uh, Rich, because there's no shortage of churches that what they do mostly is prophecy, and there's plenty of prophecy in the New Testament, uh, particularly. You know, in the Gospels, Revelation, of course, the other, there's prophecy there. You know, John's looking ahead and, and so forth. But the the prophetic utterances from the Old Testament, and the neat thing about the Old Testament, you can find Jesus on every page in the Old Testament if you know how to look for him. Because where you look at God's involvement in the world, and if you have the New Testament understanding that that the creation, that Jesus, you kind of hate to call him an operations guy because you get into the modal heresy if you, you know, that each one of the Trinity has, has a different job. And it, I don't, I don't think it works like that, but it, it's, it's a mystery nonetheless. People love the Old Testament because it's full of rules and, and you want, you know, you want rules in your faith. So I'm going to do, um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but there's a, there's a big thing in Christianity that sometime around Easter, all these Christians go have a, a Seder. Uh, it's, it's like a Passover meal. You might know more about that than I do. And I, I've been to you know Shabbat dinners on Fridays, and but I've never been to a Seder. And George, how he, this divinity guy, this Coptic priest, he actually grew up Jewish and then was raised in a Muslim neighborhood in Cairo, Egypt. He was a Hungarian Jew that escaped the Nazis. So he was a Jew. He lived around Muslims. He knew the Quran. He knew the law and became a Christian later in his team and his his response to because because oh gosh here's a here's a middle eastern jew who can really do a, a seder for us he'd say well if you want me to be a, to participate in your seder the first thing i'm going to do is circumcise all the males and people are kind of <laughs> that's that's not that funny but george's point was that the seder is is a following of the old testament laws that are now embodied fulfilled and, and unnecessary with faith in Jesus Christ, because everything that the law was, you know, designed to do in terms of uh, a closeness with God, we have that closeness with God in, in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came, essentially, he says, I'm here to fulfill the law. No one could, now that it's fulfilled, this is the new way of doing things. You know, things come through me and we have a new covenant, new arrangement. Yeah, but he, you know, it's, it's, he never said that. 
one of, one of the great things that people who know the Bible just a little bit, or maybe don't know it at all, but say, well, Jesus never says he's God. Well, he, he says it all over the place, but again, you have to kind of understand what you're reading. But his job in coming, you know, his, his role in coming to earth to save mankind wasn't to come down and toot his own horn and say, hey, I am the salvation. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He, he said that to the disciples, he said it occasionally to, to other people that were listening, you know, the crowds and so forth. And and the Pharisees, you know, they, they certainly didn't they didn't want to hear it. The uh, the thing that got him killed was was him saying that, you know, you say I am God and you are right. But he wasn't here laying out like like we would. You know, Rich, you know, you, if you're managing a business, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a plan and you're gonna tell people what you want. And we're gonna we're gonna execute it this way and boom, boom, boom. That's that's how we think. There's really nothing like that in the New Testament because, you know, up until the resurrection, nobody had any clue what was going on. And then it was some years after that when Paul started writing that everybody started catching on to, oh, yeah, this really fulfills all the stuff that the Old Testament prophets were talking about. And it's and it's stuck. But there's, you know, disciples are so panicked there in the, in the garden or in Gethsemane, and, and, and they all take off because they, they have no—Jesus keeps telling them and telling them and telling them about his identity. If you've seen me, you have seen God. You know, I am the Son. You will need each other. It's about love. And, and in, in the section of John where they leave the Last Supper, which is the start of John 15, it's famous, I think, called the Vine. And they're walking through presumably Jerusalem on the way out to Gethsemane. There are three chapters there before they actually get to the garden where Jesus has a whole lot of instructions. And he never once mentions behavior, doesn't mention sin, doesn't mention salvation. He talks only about understand who I am. Understand that people will hate you because of me. I am sending the Holy Spirit. But our Christian experience tends to be about obedience and behavior. And am I doing the right thing? Those are all things that are important. But what Jesus is is harping on, you know, and trying to get them to understand, which they don't at this point, you know, I will, you know, I will be gone for three days and then you won't see me for three days and then you will see me again. They had no idea what that meant. They'd seen Lazarus come out of the out of the cave and but nobody knew what was gonna happen. And proof is that that when he went into the grave, nobody was looking for him or waiting around. They just said, Well, after the Sabbath's over, we'll go clean him up. And um, I was listening to somebody who was preaching a sermon uh, was that not too long ago, and they, they talked about the women going, and, and they were shocked that these women were going to go, and, and the stone is rolled away, and the grave is empty, and they're taking stuff to salve his body with. And I'm like, well, no, wait a minute. How were the women going to roll that stone away? Because obviously the, room, the guards weren't going <laughs> to do it for them. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's another thing the Bible doesn't really tell us. It just We just know that the resurrection happened. But no, in, in biblical times, nobody really understood. And even the, the revelation of John, you know, toward the end, imagine if Ben Franklin showed up on your doorstep. This would be, I would love this. Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or, you know, just pick one of those people from, uh, you know, three, four hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, and have them see an automobile or an airplane or a telephone or, or a book or a cornfield. We have lots of cornfields here in the middle of Indiana. And that's what John was dealing with when he saw this revelation of what, you know, of, of the kingdom of God and what heaven was going to be like. And he's talking about bulls and bulls and faces and eagles and all. And he's doing the best he can to, he's had this revelation. Now he's trying to explain that in what he saw in, in ways that, you know, people have no idea what it is. And we don't have much of an idea who it is. And I, anytime anybody tells me they totally understand Revelation, I kind of take a step back and say, 
No. Okay, yeah, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But there is a truth that's there, and just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that the truth is not there. Well, so that's what I mean is it seems like paradox is is just everywhere. You know, fear God, but also love him. Yeah, see, and and I and I that, that's a paradox that in the Bible that if you're trying to follow the law and you're doing that imperfectly, then yes, you're in trouble. But mm. in Christ, then you don't have to worry about that. And so much of you know what we have, you know, in in faith today is um you know is, is buys into that paradox. Okay, Satan's favorite question. I just swear this is true. Satan's favorite question is, how do you know? You know, huh. how do you know? It's like, well, yeah, I can't you know, stop. I, I have I have faith, you know, and I and I kind of know that I know. And you're like, well, you know, again, it's it's a it's a it's a relationship thing that you understand that you can't, you may not be able to list it out. But even the Greeks, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, who who by the way they were operating between the Old and New Testaments, the intertestamental period between 400 BC and the time of Christ. That's when those guys were talking, and they, and they knew there was some kind of supreme god. They weren't sure who he was, but the the Greek philosophers had still had the whole world in the thrall of if you can't see it, if you can't define it, then it can't be true. It can't be real. And you know, it sounds familiar. That's a modern day way of looking at things too. Yeah. Well, and it's still. I mean, how do you define love? There was the um, oh, the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, and she finds a new world, and her boyfriend's a, a Matthew McConaughey, and uh, and she's an atheist and her father died and he he looks at her and he says well did you love your father and she goes well of course and he says uh -huh. prove it and it's like and that's and that's a lot of what we deal with and mm. the paradox question and when you have people that that fight the gospel you know fight the uh fight the triune god fight the uh you know that well no we're, we're going to assign different levels to god jesus and to the holy spirit and we're going to interpret things differently anybody can take any verse of the Bible. It's called proof texting, but you hmm. can take any, you know, take any verse in the Bible and you really kind of make it say anything you want. So that's where discernment comes in. Don't, you know, take the Bible as a whole, take a verse as a whole. When you're reading, you know, say a section of, of Paul and understand that in the Bible, the way that it's organized, a lot of times, you know, we see chapters and verses and things that it's, it's kind of a linear thing. But Paul wrote in this fancy Hebrew rhetorical uh, template, that tells you that this guy's very, very learned. And the Greeks would recognize it and they would say, boy, this guy really knows what he's doing because he's writing so elegantly in this in this format. And mm -hmm. there were, you know, we can get tied up, say, well, this doesn't agree with this and this doesn't agree with that. And there's, um, oh, the eye for an eye thing. There's one, was it Matthew okay. 6, I think, where it says, you know, you say an eye for an eye, but, but, but now I say turn the other cheek. Well, is that a paradox? No, that's a comparison with the old covenant with now the, right. the new covenant in Christ. So they're not different. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a, the, the rules have changed because now our salvation and our Sabbath, our peace is in Christ. It's not in fulfilling the law. Well, I know we, you know, unfortunately we can't ask him, but what, what do you guess that George Babawi would have said to, um, to the following? So it's also odd to me that, you know, there's a billion, billion plus Muslims in the world simultaneously as, you know, while there's 2 billion Christians and there's uh -huh. Buddhists and et cetera. Yeah. How, how could they all, how could there be so many people in each faith? And I'm sure there's tons of great people in each faith and they try very hard and they believe what they believe and they go to their deaths thinking that they're, you know, they've done the right thing. So yeah. why, you know, I, I know it gets back to the question of like, why would God allow this? But why, yeah. why does this exist? That seems like another strange paradox. What, I, I what if, um, I think God says, well, one question, um, what if, what if God says, well, 
if you're going to believe this, at least you believe something. So, okay, it may not be the exact quote unquote right thing, or it may be, but you know, if you want to believe I'm unapproachable, this, that, and the other, and I'm more like the Muslim God, then then that's what I am to you. Okay, no problem. So somebody's somebody may be wrong. Somebody, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure the truth exists, but we, while that's a tough one, it's also a very human way to look at it. And when you, as you look at how Islam has has maintained hold in in significant parts of the, of the Middle East and Southeast Asia, I can't really explain it. And when I, you know, and if I'm pressed, I can say, well, I, I guess that's one I don't know. I, uh, mm. uh, you know, and I think I don't know sometimes a you know, quite often, maybe that's our best answer. I worry about pastors that want to have an answer for absolutely everything. That if, uh, and, and another, let's, let's just let's agree that I don't know the answer to that question. It's a great question. It's okay. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that right in this era, that since, say, the Civil War in America, you know, 1860, there was this, there was this technological boom uh, through the 1800s. And then after the Civil War, suddenly we have all these land-grant technical colleges like Purdue University here, uh, Ohio State University. There are any number of schools and technology became ascendant and they were math and science oriented and they had answers. Boy, I mean, they, you know, they could figure stuff out. And, you know, we marvel at how the folks in the Middle Ages or before that built fancy structures and so forth. But now we've got math and we've got experiments and we've got ways of getting around and we can just do all this amazing amazing stuff and it was about that same time that where the bible had been ascendant at least in the west that the bible was always the key it was it was kind of the, the groundwork for the, uh, for the for the western universities when they started seeing those in the eighth ninth tenth centuries that the bible became something that the scholars thought well we need to prove the bible the same way that they are proving science and you can't do it. If you look at Moody Bible Institute, Chicago, the Cincinnati Christian University, um, Emmanuel School of Religion down in Tennessee are three that I know of. See, those all those all came into existence in around the 1920s as as colleges. Moody was, you know, went back maybe a little earlier than that. But when theology became something that tried to prove itself and they tried to say, okay, we're going to, uh, everything in the Bible is literally exactly true. And that's something that would make George Babawi laugh and would say, you know, when you say, well, why was there this whatever it was in the garden? People think Satan was a snake in the garden. No, he was cursed to be like a snake later. So whatever it was that showed up in the garden, it wasn't a snake. And whatever the fruit was, it probably wasn't an apple. So you get comfortable with that. But so why did God allow evil? And George would he laugh. He said, Bob, it's a story. And for thousands of years, everybody understood that the Bible was a a story and we don't give enough credence to understand that god in our you know has created our minds that we think in stories and we understand in story where a philosopher will say well we've got to absolutely nail this down and this has got to be specifically defined or else it can't be true that's that's not what faith does you know yeah. a lot of things you see them in faith is where you see, not by seeing, you know, that you have faith. Yeah, it's uh, well, like I said, it's just um, the concept of paradox just seems to be everywhere. I don't know another word for it. I wish I did. I wish no, but it's it's but it's also it's it's a very human it, it's it's a very human reaction to that because we all we all want to figure it out, don't we? I mean, we all want to figure yeah. it out and taking a step back and saying, okay, maybe that's one I don't figure out. Uh, if I disagree with this religion or that religion, I'll try to understand it. 
But I had to, you know, I, if I try to read, say, uh, the Quran, and there are English versions of the Quran that are, they're, they're only supposed to be in Arabic, in old Arabic, but, you know, I've, I've tried reading it to that, and I'm, it's, it's kind of impenetrable to me. The Book of Mormon is, is another one that's, it's a, it's, it's a little bit, it has a slightly, and, and if you want to understand that, ask the Mormon, and they can explain it to you. But yeah. it's something that I don't really understand. The things I don't understand. Well, what, that's good. Well, that's good. I, I'm, you know, I, I mean, there's no choice at some point, but uh, the quest is still the, uh, there's like a driving force for the, for the quest, at least in me and to different degrees and other people too. But I know you come to the realization where you, you just can't even begin to know everything, but it's just interesting to ask these questions and try. So I guess that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there, there are some dandies there, Rich. I've, uh, you know, you come around to things as, well, one of my big bugaboos is everybody talks about the price Jesus paid. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm saying that our faith isn't possibly a transaction, you know, that it's something that is love and mm-hmm. grace. You know, people on one hand, well, yes, God loves you and this is grace, but he paid a price. So now we have to some, figure out a way to pay him back or no, you can't pay him mm-hmm. back. Right. Cause he grace, you can't do that. But, but you can't hardly get through a church service without somebody saying, well, Jesus paid a price for your salvation. Well, what are you supposed to do with that? Be joyful or look at that and go, oh man, I'm really kind of a rotten sinner. So now I, now we've aggravated yeah. guilt. And now you can control me. And I, you can't get away from it. I mean, that's, that's all over you know, modern Christianity. Well, well one that? thing that, that seems, I mean, to me, that seems similar. I know it's not even on the scale at all, but a lot of people, here's another question. A lot of people talk about, oh, everything gives glory to God, et cetera. Why does, why does God need glory? He doesn't really have an ego, does he? Why, uh, why does he need glory? Why does it matter? Why is that well, important? Okay. He is glory, okay? Our purpose in life, I mean, we are created as part of his glory. He, we are created in his image, go back to Genesis, and we are created in his image as, as part of his glory. We think that that glory is something different from us because God is a complete other. And we, you know, it's they, you don't ever want to think that God's in you because as soon as you think that God has this inner light inside you, pretty soon you think that you're God and then that's, then, then you have a problem. But if, but the idea that, that God's glory is why does he need glory? Because that's what he is. I mean, it's not like something that you're imprinting on him. And I mean, it was like a little while ago, you know, nothing that we do, I don't believe, really affects God. God's righteousness is always going to be there. I, I made a point to George one time that I, I said, George, I think I figured out life. I think I figured out what my purpose is, and my purpose is to glorify God. And he said, no, you're wrong. Said, what do you mean I'm wrong? He says, well, you left out a very important part because you were created to bring God glory, yes. And the way we do that is by believing in Jesus Christ. Okay, do that. But the part I was leaving out was you're supposed to be a participant in that glory. Uh, there are a lot of places in the Bible. Uh, Paul writes about um, heavenly realms sometimes. And we always think of heaven and the kingdom as something that come only after this life. Except anybody in the faith knows that every now and then you get this little glimmer glimpse of of what it is that have you, what the whole point is in terms of you know how you're loving and you know that you have this joy. And that joy is almost always when you're giving something to somebody else, not just when you're happy because your situation and you're comfortable, but that when you're giving things to other people, that that's, that's where the real joy is. So does God need, you know, no, I don't think he can increase God's glory, but if glory is what he is and we were created in his image, then we're supposed to be participants in that. In the fall, that went away. In Jesus, we have an opportunity to reconnect. Okay. What are some uh, other head spinners 
that uh, George Babawi threw at you. He sounds like you know. Uh, again, I had a bunch of amazing them. person. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I miss him a lot. He um, well, one of my own is that we're we're real big on science these days, and uh, you know, we everybody, uh, you know, you'll be watching TV, and well, science does this and science, does that, but science doesn't really re- replace God. Science reveals God. The Bible's real big on why things happen, but there's very little about how. And mm-hmm. scientists are sure they've got all this knowledge. There's a guy. Everybody that's seen on TV, his name's Michael Gwillen. He was the ABC science editor through the 80s and 90s. He's got three PhDs in math, astronomy, and something else, physics maybe. And he wrote a book called um, Believing is Seeing. Well, there's a line that seeing is believing. Well, he wrote a book called Believing is Seeing. And it was his march through understanding all that science does not know. Eric Metaxas wrote a book about miracles, uh, you know, the type of miracles. But, and, and it's really kind of the same thing that, I think science is a little bit too proud of its own uh, of its own abilities because it can't explain where life came from. It'll say, "Well, you take some dirt, okay, fine. Where'd you get the dirt?" Right. Uh, well, the universe is created from nothing. Well, yeah, yeah. I guess something come from nothing. Ex nihilo is is the Latin phrase for that. So is that right? You know, however he did it, I, you know, I wasn't there. It's one of the things, Rich, that I that I truly don't worry about. People wonder, well. Uh, what about six days of creation? I don't know. The point isn't the six days of creation. The point is who did it? God did it. Mm. And the point is God made it good. If you want, I mean, that's that's the point. People argue about, you know, the calendar and so forth. And it's like, well, don't worry about that. Ask yourself whether God did it, you know, as because God is love and God is good. You know, did, is that why he did it? People worry about heaven. You know, well, am I going to get a reward? I don't know. But if I'm thinking about my reward, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about others. Mm. So. Right. Those things that, that come at you, and, and that that happens all the time. One thing that George really honed in on wasn't was in kind of in terms of how we think, and this would come up with people that looking at the Old Testament and they're trying to explain the New Testament based on you know that like with the primacy of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's the real Bible, so now we've got this new thing. So how do you? And you'll have Christians that are really trying to follow all these rules. And George makes a would make a point, and the best fight I ever saw. <laughs> In the class, as far as an argument with people raising their voices was when George told this young, very, very bright kid that he needed to stop thinking like a Jew and start thinking like a Christian. And that was an ultimate throwdown. But the hmm. word repent, and this is the Greek roots of repent. Anybody, anything you see in a, in, a, in a modern dictionary says it means to change your behavior. But the Greek root of that is to change your thinking. Well, I think pensive and, you know, so the, uh, the writer James in the Bible, who was Jesus's brother, and he was kind of the, the bishop of Jerusalem in, say, 40, 50 AD, and talked about, you know, about repentance. And people talk about their repentance and think, oh, that means you've got to behave better. No, you got to stop thinking like the law is the ascended thing. You've got to start thinking like a Christian that in faith that Jesus is the Christ of the living God and trust him as Lord and Savior. And that that repentance is, you know, it's it's so important in terms of how you think as opposed to you know, people will say, well, I'm going to change my behavior and be a good Christian. I mean, I know a guy, and I, I used to work with him, actually kind of a famous guy, and he's come to Jesus. And he comes, he came to Jesus because he wanted to go to heaven. I'm like, okay, glad you're in the house, you know. But at some point, he's a baby Christian as long as he's there just because he wants to get to heaven. If you want to serve the Lord in this life, and if you want to participate in that kingdom glory and, 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 part- and find that joy of giving, then then you've got to let yourself go and and not think so much about my problems, my you know my comforts, my you know whatever it is, and uh, 
and and think of. Uh, are there um are there any mysteries that George left you with that still puzzle you to this day? Anything he brought up to you that yeah sticks so, in your heart? Yes, yes. Why me? You know, Rich, I've got a brother that doesn't. He's maybe I'll leave his. I don't know that this podcast will get to him, but I'll I'll leave his. But he's he's possibly the nicest human being I know. I mean, he just doesn't have it in him to upset people. He helps everybody, but Jesus isn't for him, you know, and, and I'm a believer and uh, his nephews are believers and he's, you know, he's around here. He's, he's around it, but he just, he sees it. He goes, nah, that, that's that He just doesn't get it. I, and I, uh, you know, the guy cuts my hair, but cut my hair for 20 years. Oh, there's no God. Are you, you? And I don't proselytize. I don't tell, well, you're wrong and so forth, but why me? How come, how come I get it? And somebody else didn't get it. Hmm. And George, you know, nobody has an answer for that. They'll say, well, just read the Gospel of John and this and that. It's like, no, I don't need you to explain it to me because the fact that I'm sitting here in church and I'm writing and I'm, you know, I, I, I preach a little bit now and then. I uh, not, not at the church, but like at an old folks home if they're having a service or something, you know, go help out. I've taught Bible classes and and I and I have a faith that I that I don't really doubt very much. And hmm. That's actually pretty healthy. G.K. Chesterton said the the, uh, the the one thing that separates the sane from the insane is that the insane have no doubts, <laughs> and, that, and that and you kind of go, okay, well, there's plenty of things that I don't understand, so we'll count that as doubt. But I've got a faith that I, I I don't doubt the existence of truth. I don't doubt the existence of Jesus. I don't doubt his identity. But in terms of why at you know at age forty seven, I I came along, and 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 it was a the funny timing was I was in a the one phase of my career had kind of ended at that point. And I had, thanks to that, I had actually gotten to know my sons really well. I was, I was more involved in their activities because I was professional. I was very busy doing other stuff for a number of years. And, um, but suddenly I had this unbelievable gift of, of time so that when, you know, when, when this faith thing started, I had time to, to, to look into it and spend time studying and, uh, and it's made all the difference, but I'm 69 now. I turned 69 last week and, Oh, hope I got a few more years. I'm uh, I'm actually starting a new career. I was retired and was driving a school bus here and uh, did that for a while. My wife's a retired English teacher, and now I'm going to teach at uh, Mission Christian Academy here in uh, mm. in Fishers. And they asked if I'd teach high school history and government and economics, and those are I actually was sort of a business minor in uh, college. I wound up straight from that, but I had some economics, and I'm just. Uh, you know, it's what a what a neat opportunity to be at a Christian school where you don't have to ignore the reality of God, or you don't have to ignore the authority of the Bible, or you know, the presence of the Spirit, or the truth of Jesus Christ. And mm. I had a kid in school. But I said, "How do they teach math in a Christian school?" And I said, "Just like they teach math everywhere else. You know, it's 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 still math, but it's it's because well, a lot of people think that you know yeah, a faith yeah, means you it, abandon it, all reason." Yeah, and isn't that funny? People think that to be a follower of Christ, that you have to abandon all reason, which, who invented reason? Who invented our mind? Think, well, you know, people think, you know, listen to Tyson or any of these guys, and, well, you know, first we were mushrooms, and then that morphed into a plant, I don't know, swimming in the ocean without a tail, and yeah, yeah. on land, and now, you know, now he's got a TV show. Great. I, there's a really good, um, actually, like a little video montage, The Simpsons did it, you know, it starts in the ocean, and is like a protozoan. It goes, dah, 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 and it splits up into millions of Homer Simpsons. And it's really good. Simpsons evolution. If you look up, uh, yeah. you know, on YouTube, yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. And, and an interesting point to me, that's fascinating. You know, everybody's seen that thing with the monkey that walks into a man. 
mm-hmm. right? That it's supposedly a Darwinian thing. If you right. look up the etymology of where that came from, that was done in the 1950s. I mean, that was that had anything to do with Darwin. It was somebody saying, "Okay, here's 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 a small monkey," and then he gets more and more upright, and then suddenly he's Homo sapiens. But again, that science, I think, you know, protecting its turf. And God bless science. I had back surgery a couple of years ago. You know, everything's fine. But when I went into that surgery room, I wasn't counting noses for okay, who's Christian and who's white and who's Asian and who's black and who's Muslim. And I didn't care about any of that right. stuff. I was looking for you know, the, the, the skill sets of why that, that they belonged in the room is I certainly had no idea what was going on. Hmm. Well, very good. Bob, it's been great to talk to you. I'd like to have you back when you've answered all the questions of the universe, but that may be a little bit, but, but yeah, thank you for coming. Um, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. It's a, uh, it's a, I'll just, I'll, I'll do the Christian saying and say, it, say it's a blessing to have had this time with you. And I, I hope somebody hears it and, and it makes them think. That's why I do what I do is it's, I want it to be an encouragement for believers, and I uh, and and uh, and the writing is to hopefully make make folks think. If I do that, then then uh, I think that's my mission. Yeah, excellent. Um, so how do people subscribe to your column? How do they find out more about you? Where can they go? It's I'm Bob Walters on Facebook, commonchristianity.blogspot.com. Yeah, it's just commonchristianity one word blogspot.com. I, I've never commercialized it. I've never counted noses. I've got an email list I send to. I will send the column weekly to anybody. I publish the column online. And if, if I publish a column of a picture of my dog, it'll get 120 likes. So if I, when I publish my column, I'll get three or four. So, it, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of follows. I don't, I don't look for that, but I, my, my personal email is actually at the bottom of each column and they can either write to me or uh, there's a there's a way to subscribe if they if they find the the blog, but it's all totally open and open to the public, and I and I leave it that way just for if somebody's got an interest, let them take a look. And I, uh, I over the years, I've been surprised at anything. I've been surprised at how few people have come back and said, "Oh no, you're completely full of baloney." That early on, some of the philosophers would say, "Oh, you can't have that stuff in the newspaper when it's being published." And it's like, well, yeah, you can do anything you want. You know, it's yes, you can because we're a private enterprise. But it's uh, you know, just. The name Common Christianity. There's a couple of Bob Walters. One of them is a dinosaur artist. Oh, cool. yeah, go figure. But uh, yeah. Common Christianity, and I do it out of love. And if I ever make a nickel at it, it'll probably probably screw me up. So we'll just leave it there. Well, very good, Bob. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really Thanks appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Remember, if you're looking for groundbreaking low sugar products, head over to oobly.com and try the world's first iced teas made with sweet proteins the future of sweet, because we all deserve to feel good about healthy sweetness. Use the promo code genius at oobly.com and get 20% off their lemon, peach, or mango yuzu sweet iced teas. Oobly is sweet without sacrifice. Website is oobli.com. Promo code genius, G-E-N-I-U-S. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.